all the decisions and actions that are predictable. We want to standardize those in guidelines and cognitive aids, and we want to repeatedly drill them so that we convert them from requiring analytical cognition to automatic cognition so that when we are performing these procedures, um, even though some of them are, are quite complex and, and high pressure, we actually do them as much as possible using automatic cognition, which doesn't use up a lot of our cognitive bandwidth, so that when that unforeseen emergency occurs, like the scenes suddenly become unsafe and we need to move the patient ourselves and all the equipment out of here, then we've got as much of our, our um, decision-making capacity free uh, to, to deal with the nuanced aspects of, of that, that situation. Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis and this is The Emergency Mind, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Stephen Herrns. Stephen is a consultant in emergency medicine and aeromedical retrieval medicine and an expert in pre-hospital care and rescue medicine. He works with and helped to found Scotland's Emergency Medical Retrieval Service, which is something we spend a lot of time talking in this conversation about. He also led the team establishing the Diploma in Retrieval and Transfer Medicine for the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh and is the author of a truly excellent book on individual and team performance in emergency situations called Peak Performance Under Pressure. I'm really honored to have Stephen on the podcast with us. I've personally learned a lot from his writing and teaching, and our conversation in this episode has a ton of depth, both around thinking under pressure and how he and his teams function today, but also about the path he took to get here and how his thinking changed along the way. Before we jump into the episode, I am deeply excited to announce publicly a project I've been working on for quite a while, the Emergency Mind book, which will be coming out soon. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and it brings together mental models, tools, and lessons both from my own practice of emergency medicine and also from other arenas and experts at performance under pressure, like what you're used to hearing on this podcast. It's a book I wish I had when I was starting out as an emergency doctor, and I am honestly just really thrilled to be able to share it with you all very soon. To learn more about the book and to check out a sample chapter, head over to emergencymind.com book. Okay, all that said, let's jump into the episode. I hope you enjoy. Well, let's jump in. Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. I've been really looking forward to this. Uh, I'm a huge fan of your book, Peak Performance Under Pressure. I have a really dog earmarked and underlined copy sitting right next to me. And it's it's an honor to have you on, man. Thanks for joining. No, listen, I'm really looking forward to this. Thanks for your kind comments uh, uh, about the book and indeed for the, the invitation to uh, speak to you today. Thank you. Absolutely. So I would I would imagine a lot of people listening to this are also familiar with a ton of the stuff that you're doing. But for anybody that isn't, that doesn't know you yet, what, who are you? What's your deal? Yeah. Um, so I'm based in Glasgow in Scotland. And work-wise, I spend 50% of my time as a consultant emergency physician. And I'm lucky enough to spend 50% of my time uh, as a, a flight physician with the Emergency Medical Retrieval Service in Scotland, um, where I'm involved in pre-hospital critical care, but also in critical care transfer of patients from remote parts of, of Scotland. And in addition to that, for the past 20 odd years, uh, on a voluntary basis, I have been a doctor with uh, one of the mountain rescue teams in Scotland. Uh, so emergency physician by trade, uh, working 50% ED, 50% retrieval, uh, and involved in, in mountain rescue as, as well. But my, I suppose my main interest at the moment and probably for the past five years has been a, how we perform as humans, particularly cognitively in high pressure, high stakes situations. Um, really interested um, and trying to improve my own behavior and my own responses to, to these high pressure situations that uh, I get myself into as a, as a professional, uh, but indeed how we work better together as teams and as whole organizations to facilitate high performance uh, in high pressure, high stakes environments and, and situations. Mm. So cool. What, what a fascinating, like, um, 
mix of different responsibilities and different roles. How did you come to that? I mean, I would assume, did, did you start as, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use air quotes here, just an emergency doctor and then sort of branch out into a lot of this other stuff? Or did, did you start at it from a different angle? Yeah, so I, absolutely. Um, I trained as a, an emergency uh, physician in, in the UK. Near the end of my, my training, we identified that there was a, a need for a critical care transfer service for patients who were seriously ill and injured, who were living in remote parts of, of Scotland. And we also were starting to realise that there was a need for an enhanced pre-hospital service to look after seriously injured patients at the site of their accidents, uh, particularly in, in rural areas. And as part of that, I was really lucky to spend the, the final six months of my training uh, in the early 2000s with London's Air Ambulance, which absolutely um, transformed uh, my whole professional career. Um, in that six month period, I was exposed to uh, a really large number of, of seriously injured patients. And I was working as, as part of a service which had superb leadership, had a, an excellent culture, and just had a, an approach to uh, to teamwork and safe systems that I just had never experienced before in, in the 10 hospitals that I had uh, previously trained in. So that completely um, opened my eyes to, to the concepts of, of performance under pressure, to safe systems in healthcare, um, it really massively improved my, my clinical exposure to, to seriously ill and injured patients and inspired us to, to start the, the service in, in Scotland. So yeah, so 10 years training as an emergency physician um, and just that extra six months at, at the end of my training, and uh, we thought um, we need the same system here in, in Scotland. And what actually transpired after that was um, in my first year as a consultant, we got a group of, of 10 consultants together and we set up the retrieval service in Scotland on a completely voluntary unpaid basis. And we had 10 consultants who operated that service unpaid for, for two years, whilst we uh, built up the, the evidence base um, for the benefits that we could provide to patients. We built up links with, with rural uh, clinicians uh, and we, we wrote our own business case and we, we lobbied the government and eventually after uh, actually a total of five years, we got full permanent funding um, for, for a retrieval service for, for Scotland. Uh, and I was lucky enough to, to lead that service for 15 years. So that's um, how it's, uh, it's transpired that um, I've got this, uh, this job plan, which uh, really suits me um, and um, you know hold, definitely holds my, my interest and still challenges me, that mix of emergency medicine and, and um, aeromedical retrieval. Uh, I mean, it sounds like that six month period of sort of intense exposure was really like a match that sort of lit this, this flame for you for all of this. But, but I would imagine that you have to be a certain type of person and you have to have a certain set of knowledge to really even understand what you're walking into for that. Right. So, so when you were training in those years before that, before that six month period, what was your relationship with performance under pressure? Like, was this something that you had talked about as a young kid around the dinner table? Was this something that you picked up through something else besides emergency medicine, or was this just something that was baked into you as part of your, your normal training as an emergency physician? Um, to be honest, that absolutely not. It, it really um, wasn't something that I'd, I'd thought about at, at all. Um, certainly in the UK, we, we talk a lot about clinical governance and, and safe systems, but that, to be honest, is it comes across as a, a really dry uh, and, and boring subject, which uh, um, superficially has got no real applicability to to a high performance high pressure healthcare um so really um i i, I, I very little knowledge of it uh, and i very little uh, interest in it um and certainly in terms of um human factors and non-technical skills in you know 10 years of postgraduate training five years of undergraduate training there had just been no mention of of those and um, I have to say that it was my time in London's Air Ambulance and, and subsequent to that um, in the Air Medical Retrieval Service in Scotland, actually working with 
pilots, almost all of whom were, were ex-military pilots, that I, I began to learn um, more about the concepts of, of uh, human factors uh, and indeed uh, team resource management, non-technical skills, etc. Um, and it was only then that I began to see uh, the applicability of those uh, principles and, and those skills, those tools um, to high pressure healthcare. You know, that's just amazing. And, and I think about that too, as I go through my own training about how people can be put in situations where they're having to perform in emergencies and having to perform in crises and just not having really a toolkit available when you're starting that. And, and I hope that part of our job here at the Emergency Mind and through everything that you're doing um, through core cognition and through your books and through everything else, I, I hope we're going to eliminate that, that, uh, that gap. I hope we're going to be able to create the tools that really help people sort of start in before that. Um, conversely, I'll say if you're listening to this and maybe you haven't been exposed to this a ton, like hopefully this is a story of hope that you're hearing because you can realize like maybe you go through a period of time not having known that and then you can be exposed to it. You know, it can ignite this passion and you can sort of move forward with these with these deeper ideas about it. Um, so, okay. So, oh, please. Can I actually just interrupt there? And I, to be honest, when I was training in, in some hospitals and in some specialties, it was the absolute opposite. Um, I, I spent six months doing, as a junior doctor in orthopedic surgery, um, probably around in the late 90s. And I really disliked that, that specialty. I, I, I disliked the unit that I was working in. And no matter what I did, um, I, I felt it was was wrong, um, and in, in retrospect, it was the complete uh, opposite um, of all of the principles that, that we were talking about. There was uh, there was no training in, in place. There was no reflective practice. There were no guidelines. There was no structure. There was no support. Uh, and it's only years later that I actually realised that I was performing actually quite well in, in the role. Um, but it was the, the whole system, the whole structure, the whole culture and, and leadership of that, that unit that were, uh, were, were actually uh, conspiring to, to make me perform badly. Um, and so it was actually the, the complete opposite on, on, on reflection. Mm. And I think that gets directly to a point, which is one of the, the most interesting and concrete things that I took from reading your book um, is really that there's and pl like, please correct me if I'm misinterpreting this, but really that there's sort of like three components that go into a lot of what we're talking about, about performance under pressure. There's the individual piece, like how the individual understands their relationship with stress and pressure. What do they do about that? What's directly within my control as an operator? There's the team dynamics piece and the leadership piece, which is how do individuals fit together? How does a leader, how does a leader guide um, a team and a group? And then there's sort of the organizational and uh, environmental piece, which is how do we design systems, environments, and structures that enable and op and um, optimize the chance for success. And it, it, your book does a really phenomenal job at breaking those down into those structures and sort of diving deep into them. So, so first off, it, it, like, does that framework make sense? Are we sort of in the right place about that? You've absolutely hit the, the nail on the head. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad that the, uh, the content of the book comes across in, in that way. Um, what I eventually came to was this model of, of owning the pressure. So, Pressure is absolutely essential for us to perform well physically, to perform well cognitively, um, to communicate uh, as part of a team, to, to be innovative. We need a certain degree of pressure to motivate us, to arouse us, to stimulate us, to get into the zone of, of high performance flow. And it's only when the pressure is excessive that our ability to perform starts to deteriorate. So initially it started thinking about how as a, an individual um, through training, through different tools and techniques that we could use, how can I as an individual in a, in a high pressure situation own that pressure? How can I calibrate that pressure to achieve uh, that zone of high performance flow? And then I began to realize that there was, there was much more to it than that. 
It was about the, the other people who you were working with, some of whom are, are known to you, some of whom aren't known to you. How, what is their role in also owning the pressure, creating that right uh, zone of pressure for high performance? But arguably just as important is the whole organization that you work for, what are they doing in terms of organizational culture, in terms of leadership? to put the right pressure into uh, the, the system uh, in order that when you are faced with that high stakes situation, that the, they've done everything that they can to ensure that the pressure on you is, is just right. So I, I was speaking to some mates when I was out cycling who are engineers and together we come up with a, um, a pressure management system like a, like a, a pipe system where um, the, the organization um, through selecting the right people, the right leadership, the right culture, puts pressure into the whole system. Um, and then you as a team and as an individual train um, and, and perform and communicate to calibrate the pressure. And then finally, if there are excessive pressure builds up in the system and you do move into that zone of poor performance, what tools and techniques can you use as an individual as a team to, to uh, basically relieve that pressure and move back into the room of, of high performance flow. So, so yeah, it's about the, the organization, it's about the operational team, and it's about you uh, as an individual. Mm. So, so somebody listening to this who maybe is um, more junior in their training, they're, they're a young Stephen or a young Dan, and they're, they're coming in, um, uh, they're, they're coming up and they're just starting. And they're listening to this and saying, wow, that, that's incredible. This whole overview of the universe in terms of like person and team and structure. But, I, but what do I control, right? What do I start doing with that? And how does somebody who's just starting get into learning about this? And, and what can that person do? It's, a, it's really interesting. I, um, I, I think by doing your research uh, into performance under pressure, particularly into human factors and starting to get an, an understanding of why we behave the way that we do when uh, we're, we're under excessive pressure. And also um, learning about the, the terminology, that the phrases and, and the labels um, that are applied to different behaviors and, and stimuli that we receive in, in high pressure situation um, allows us to recognize those, those situations when, when they arise uh, and also to, to anticipate them and to, to deal with them. So I think it's um, initially learning a bit about the, the psychology and the behavioral aspects of, of pressure and trying to get a handle on the different terminology um, that's used by um, professionals in, involved in, in those fields so that they've got a badge for um, how they feel or what traits they observe in other people um, when they're experiencing excessive pressure. So yeah, I think that's a, that, that's a good way to, to start, try and understand um, why we behave the, the way that we do. Yeah, and I think that that's something that's, that's come up in, in our previous conversations. And, and I think in a lot of conversations on this podcast is, is the idea that whatever your role is, whatever type of an operator you are, part of your job is to really become a student of yourself, right? To really try to understand deeply how your personal brain works, how your body works, how you particularly function under pressure. And part of that is understanding on average, how humans respond to pressure, right? To understand the framework and the vocabulary so that when you find yourself in a circumstance and you're totally to use a word you, you use in the book a lot in, in frazzle right you're just totally out on the edge of too much pressure you can say okay this is what's happening i i'm on this part of the yerkes dodson curve and that tells me i need to do this kind of a thing and so you're not just totally overwhelmed by that feeling and then part of it is also experimenting for yourself right understanding like okay if this is average like what is it that i personally need to do what are my tells what are my signals about when i'm overloaded for this kind of thing I wonder if we can to, to bridge off that and go back in time slightly. So for that period of time when you were working with London's air ambulance and you were starting to see other individuals that had sort of thought through how pressure works for them and how 
you know, they understood some of this framework, this vocabulary, and they were doing these experiments on themselves. What was that like for you? I mean, what were you feeling in those moments when you were just starting to become aware of this kind of stuff and how conscious of it were you? What, what did you do? Were you keeping a journal? Were you taking notes? Were you running experiments? What was that like? I wouldn't say um, in, in any way. I What I would say was it, it wasn't a, a binary uh, event where there was a, a sudden light bulb moment. It was a, a gradual realization um, that through their training system, through the really detailed guidelines that they had, uh, through drilling, through simulation, um, that I could actually uh, take responsibility for a multiply injured complex patient um, in a very short period of time um, without any additional support other than uh, my paramedic teammate. So in the, 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 the you, you train for, for one month called your, your sign off period. And, and they took me um, uh, as a, an emergency physician who, who was not yet fully trained and had a relatively low exposure to multiple injured patients and no real pre-hospital experience. And within a space of a month, because of the, the, the systems that they had, particularly training, standard operating procedures, um, simulation, reflective practice, they took me within that month period to be, become someone who could operate independently and take charge of uh, those patients in those, those situations, perform emergency anesthesia, perform pre-hospital thoracotomy, uh, thoracostomies, um, and I just thought that that was, that was really pretty incredible um, and a fantastic reflection of the system that they created. And I really felt that uh, other specialties, other services should replicate uh, that, that type of system that they had. Hmm. So, okay, if you're listening, th that might have flown a little bit under the radar. What, what, what Stephen's describing there, pre-hospital anesthesia, um, you know, anesthetizing a patient, placing a breathing tube, um, and pre-hospital thoracotomies and thoracostomies, these are incredibly challenging events that are some of the most advanced trauma and medical resuscitative care we have available in our arsenal. And to do them, uh, to, to, to sort of calmly say, oh, and then I was able to do them after, after some training with these systems is... That, that is a very sophisticated, very complicated thing you're describing there. And the, the pressure that it that one faces when performing those techniques in a very well-controlled, appropriately sterilized environment in a resuscitation bay in a major hospital, that's a high level of pressure right there. But to perform them on the side of a road, just jumping off of a helicopter, which like sidebar, had you, had you ever flown on a helicopter before this? I, I have a dozen times before on a search and rescue helicopter, but uh, not a small helicopter. Um, and certainly in London, London's air ambulance will will land in a, in a small car park. They'll land on a T-junction of a, a two-lane uh, urban road. Um, no, it's uh, yeah, what they do is 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 uh, is fantastic, but it's it's pretty full on, yeah. That, that's absolutely amazing. And, and to go from that level of exposure to performing those techniques independently in a short time period has an enormous amount uh, to say. And I would, I would, I would say it has an enormous amount to say about you as a person and your previous training and skills, and also about the program that they put you through. Um, what surprised you the most about that? What was the most unexpected or sort of unseen piece of what they were doing? So I have to say this is, is getting on for, for 20 years ago. Um, the, the thing for me was about standardization, um, pre-planning, and the, the concept of, of cognitive aids and, and, and checklists, um, the, 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 the equipment check system. So, so those are the things. And also, I have to say that the clinical governance days and the reflective practice. So, so I suppose speaking about those individually, it was the idea that they had developed quite succinct um, and didactic standard operating procedures to deal with all of the predictable situations that you were getting into. 
Um, so there was a standardized approach to um, performing uh, various pre-hospital surgical procedures, um, performing procedural sedation or a pre-hospital emergency anesthetic that you knew how you were going to go about doing that, what equipment you were going to use, what drugs you were going to use, what doses you were going to use, and the paramedic that was working with you um, had um, absolute familiarity with the same standard operating procedures, and the, the two of you could um, work very well hand-in-hand, hand, almost without having to um, verbally explain to each other what your decision-making uh, was and, and what needed to be to be done. This uh, concept of a, a team of two of you with a standardized uh, approach. Um, the, the next thing um, was the concept of, of how we put our, our equipment to, together. Um, there are, you, you know what it's like in the ED when a piece of equipment fails or you can't put your hand on a, on a piece of equipment. Uh, you can imagine um, performing a, an emergency anaesthetic uh, out of hospital and the suction doesn't work or the lingoscope doesn't go on or you find out that, that something's been, been left behind. You can't just uh, go into a cupboard or go up to a ward and, and get that. So just a really simple process of two-person check and response for all of the equipment bags and stealing all the bags up with a zip tie to, so that you looked at a bag and you knew that two of your mates had spent an hour checking that bag. It was sealed up and therefore it was 100% uh, reliable that everything you needed was in it. And that just avoided any surges and unnecessary pressure when you were at scene or on the way to, to a job. And then the other um, component of it, something that I'd never experienced before, was a culture of twice a week, sitting around with a, a cup of coffee, they call it um, death and donuts, um, and talking about the, the jobs that you had been involved in, uh, the, the, the nuances of those, the complexity of those, what your approach to, to that patient and that scene um, and those other emergency responders had been, and for your colleagues to sit around and say, yeah, I think I would have done the same thing. Maybe you could have thought of doing that. I've been involved in that before, but in a psychologically, genuinely psychologically safe culture and an open culture where you could show vulnerability um, and you could talk about what, what you think you could have done better and everyone learned from that. And then on top of that, what the service does, London's Air Ambulance, and, and most Air Ambulances now in the, in the UK do this, is they actually um, got the full team together once a month for a full day where for a clinical governance day, which would have you know safety meetings, you'd, you'd talk about significant events that had occurred, it would maybe be some teaching sessions, but the, the centre of the whole day was what they, they called a longitudinal audit of a single complex case where that would be discussed in depth in front of an audience of 50 to 100 people for, for an hour. Um, and you, you would bear your soul. Um, and again, the idea was that you would get supportive and constructive uh, feedback. And that concept of that, that open and psychologically safe culture was just, I'd never experienced it uh, that at all in the, the, the 10 different hospitals I'd worked in, in before. Uh, and, I, and I found that an absolute breath of, of fresh air within medicine. Hmm. And so as you went forward in time then to, to, to be in charge of building um, you know, the Scotland Air Medical Retrieval Service and build your own team around that, how did you create that culture? How did you how did you bake into that open and psychologically safe part that that you're harping on here? That is a question that I get asked a lot, um, and it's something that I try to describe in the book, and I, and I don't really think that I do it well. So the main thing that I get asked is. Um, I have got this team, um, which has been in existence for X numbers of years. We've got Y number of people in it. We have got these challenges. How do we change our culture? And that is a very different proposition 
to actually starting a system from, from scratch. So everything just lined up for me when we started the Emergency Medical Retrieval Service because I'd just finished working in London and there was only one other person who had worked in London as, as well. None of the other doctors that uh, started with the service on a voluntary basis uh, had any of that previous experience at all. So when we started, I said, this is the way that you run an air ambulance. And everyone said, yep, that, that must be right. So, so actually taking that, those systems and that culture uh, and, and starting the service uh, from scratch was actually really pretty easy. The next part of it was, is about selecting the, the right people who've got buy-in to, to that, that type of, of culture, um, especially senior doctors who are willing to follow didactic guidelines, who are, are willing to show vulnerability and discuss jobs that, that didn't go well. The people that we had at the start and the, the people that we've had since then are all absolutely self-selecting in that they are attracted to come and work for our service because we have got that culture, because we had that type of leadership, because we've got those, those safe systems. And therefore, the, the, the people who come and, and want to work with you, want to work with you because you've got that there and, and buy into that and are enthusiastic about it. Um, the other thing that I think that we did, which was um, uh, definitely was a success, was shared ownership of the whole uh, culture and all of the systems that, that we have. So um, we've now got 30 consultants and we've got uh, 10 paramedics and nurses who work with us full time. But each of those 40 people has an area for service operations and development that they're responsible for. So someone is in charge of you know, multiple casualty major incident response, someone else is in charge of equipment, someone else is in charge of significant event management. And what that meant right from the start, every single person felt empowered and emancipated and they felt ownership of the emergency medical retrieval service. And they had pride in it. And right from the start, um, I, I think that that was a, a, a really good uh, tool that we had. A, it allowed huge amounts of work to be done very quickly uh, and B, people did it to a high standard and had respect for, for everyone else's role and the different um, things that other people were, were putting in place. So that idea of the whole team um, having ownership and, and control uh, was, was hugely beneficial and, and still is within uh, the retrieval service in Scotland. Hmm. So, I mean, that's a truly unique and like totally wonderful situation to be able to, to, to create from scratch that service and to, to build it, to sort of design the whole program from like soup to nuts, like all the way through. So most of us work in situations where we are a part of a team and that team is larger than us and bigger than us and, and beholden to other things other than our own desire for it. Um, so I think a, a pretty natural question to that, and I'd imagine you've been asked this before is, so what do I do in that circumstance, right? I'm somebody who really cares about performance under pressure. I work as part of a team. How do I bend the culture and either as a team leader or as a member of the team in order to incorporate some of these things like, like you're describing the, you know, the sense of ownership, the, um, logistics of communication, the uh, psychologically safe space to debate and to grow like that? Where does that come from? So I think, well, it needs to come from the people in the team themselves. It, it can't in any way be um, thrust upon them or, or pushed too hard um, by someone who's a, an evangelist for, for this type of thing or uh, or the leader of the, the team. It can't be, be pushed on to people. People need to see the need for it. They need, they need to, to um, understand and perceive the, the benefits of it. And I suppose it has to be a mixture of um, positive motivators and also maybe some negative motivators as, as well. So positive motivators as in 
Um, let's go and look at a, another high performance team uh, and that does the same type of thing that we do. How do they go about it? What systems and components have they got in place? It's about actually giving people the tools and, and the framework through uh, training about performance under pressure and, and human factors. And, and again, coming back to that idea of giving them the, the, the terminology. It's all, uh, and it's about the, the, what I just talked about there, the idea of dividing up the work, giving everyone a role, giving everyone ownership to take the whole thing forward to, together so that they've got uh, real pride in, in, in what you're trying to do together as, as a team. Uh, it's definitely about giving people the resources and it's about um, establishing uh, time for those those periods of, of team reflection, whether that's you know clinical governance meetings or M and M meetings, etc. But also there's there's I suppose that a negative motive uh, motivation for it as well is actually looking at um, maybe your your performance metrics or individual uh, patient cases that haven't gone well that could have gone better. If you, for example, had a, a different training program, if um, you had different guidelines, etc., and actually, when you're analysing um, those types of, of significant adverse events, definitely talking about uh, you know the human factors, the behavioural aspects of it, the the performance aspects of it, and slowly, hopefully, hopefully, people will come to to realise that that's just as important as having that bit of kit or even gone in that that technical course. So, so those those components, but um, that is a whole uh, world of difference from just starting a, a team from, from scratch with a, a bunch of enthusiasts. Yeah, that, that last part I think is incredibly important, right? The, the idea of sort of never wasting the suffering that you're exposed to, right? So if you have a bad case and something happens that isn't the standard that you want it to be, using that as a leverage point to galvanize conversation about human factors under pressure and human performance under pressure. And, and I think that that, you know, I think if you mash up that idea with what we talked about in the beginning of those sort of three components, the individual ownership component, the like teamwork dynamic component and the systems component, that's a great time to sort of apply that framework as you're, as you're analyzing what happened and, and try to figure out what to do about it. Um, there's a car alarm in the background that I hope is not yeah, getting hit. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, we're gonna we're gonna deal with that car alarm in the background. Um, okay, so uh, so flashing forward in time again, right? So so you've created this team and now you've been operating it. And and how long has this team been running? Like now? Uh, sixteen years now. 16. Wow. Sixteen, I assume you're saying, not sixty for. No, no, sixty one six. Okay, there we go. All right, excellent. Which is phenomenally actually an example from your book when you're talking about closed loop communication. You actually say, <laughs> say out sixteen one six. But in any case, um, okay. So, so you've had this team, you've built this team, and it's been going now for sixteen years, which is an, an incredible accomplishment. Um, and I have sort of two questions about that. So one is you mentioned earlier the idea of one of the things that successful teams do is they identify areas of predictability within an unpredictable universe, and they try to design protocols to, to apply to those areas. So flipping that a little bit, in these past 16 years you've been building this, what are some of the most unpredictable things that you guys have encountered, things that you weren't necessarily set up for at the beginning that have really altered the way that you perform under pressure? The, the types of things that um, we didn't predict um, were the demands on us at multiple casualty major incidents um, in terms of um, very dynamic scenes with um, paucity of information, then inaccurate information and changing information. Um, and then there can be sudden surges in, in access uh, to uh, multiple casualties with serious injuries that that require um, uh, care from a, a number of, of healthcare providers. So uh, we really have evolved our, our team major incident response uh, over the years. I would say 
that we have had a, a number of, of challenges with adverse weather uh, in Scotland, especially during the winter, which really makes accessing some of the remote sites that, that we go to very difficult. So we can have a, a, a family physician uh, on an island 150 miles away from here with a critically uh, ill patient. Uh, and with the best will in wor the world, we can actually get to them. Um, so that can be very frustrating. And the, the way that we, uh, the, the training that we provide to those um, uh, individuals has been enhanced. And also, I suppose, the standard of remote telemedicine support um, has, has improved. And um, inevitably, I have to say that the uh, coronavirus pandemic um, absolutely broadsided us um, in terms of both pre-hospital care and critical care uh, retrieval. Um, in terms of the, you're, you're looking after someone who's critically injured at a, a car accident or a scene of interpersonal violence is difficult enough um, without wearing a, a face mask and, and a visor uh, and a suit. Um, and actually going out to some of these patients uh, in rural areas who may well um, be critically unwell and, and may well have, have COVID-19 and actually transferring them can take 10 hours uh, wearing heavy, uncomfortable personal protective equipment. Uh, so what we were doing before uh, was, was complex, high pressure and high risk, and that's just been, been ramped up uh, during the, the, the pandemic uh, and we've had to uh, you know duck and dive uh, a lot to to adapt to, to those challenges when you all have been doing your continued training your sim training are you doing that sim training incorporating these new changes about ppe and this extra sort of like layer of difficulty with that Yes, we we have. Now, I I see drilling and, and, and simulation as, as two kind of different things. Um, so what we, we I, I see drills as for predictable routine procedures or for predictable emergencies like a, a difficult airway um, or, you know, sudden hypertension on, on anesthesia. So um, and, and I see simulation more for uh, developing non-technical skills like leadership, teamwork, and, and communication. So what we did was we looked at the, the types of things that we did before, uh, both during transfer and at uh, uh, scenes of, of uh, major trauma. And we, we used to, to drill those components. Um, but what we do, do now is that we... We drill putting on the, the PPE, we drill taking it off, and then we, we do our, our um, emergency anaesthetic drills or uh, our surgical airway drill uh, using the, uh, the, the personal protective uh, equipment. Yeah, so it, um, it just um, it highlighted to us the, the challenges, particularly in terms of dexterity, um, in terms of, of communication. Um, we developed new systems to minimize contaminating equipment. Um, and, and yeah, that's that's pretty much what we do routinely now. So I want to go back to something you just said, which is it, that you conceive of the idea of drilling as being responding to and training for predictable events. The idea of sim as being uh, sort of devoted to finding non-technical and human factor skills. But what do you do for designing training for unpredictable events? Well, that's a that's a good a good question. So the, the way that I I've increasingly got this model in, in my head, and I'm sure that uh, someone that's a lot more knowledgeable than me will, will have a, a name for this. But I, I I see the things that we do and the, the decisions that we need to make in an emergency situation has been divided up into three. Um, and the, the the model I've got in my head is a bit like a Mercedes Benz and. Um, uh, logo at the moment where you've got a circle uh, with three 120-degree triangles. So there are things that you need to do that are predictable and routine, um, such as performing a primary survey, putting on a femoral traction splint, setting up for a blood transfusion, 
then there are predictable emergencies. We are going to carry out this procedure and it is known that there's a risk of uh, a failed airway. It's known that there's a risk that this patient will become hypotensive. And then there are the unpredictable uh, emergencies, um, which you just couldn't predict and you uh, you can't drill for, you, you can't write a standardized guideline to, to deal with. I often think I'm beginning to sound a bit like Donald Rumsfeld and the, the known knowns and the known unknowns. Um, so so what the way I take it a look at it is for we've got a limited cognitive bandwidth for um taking on board information, making decisions and carrying out actions. And there are two ways that we can do that using analytical cognition, which is conscious and rational, um, but it's slow and it takes up a lot of that cognitive bandwidth. And then there are other things that we do which are automatic and intuitive. So my whole approach to, to training is trying to preserve that bandwidth um, for the stuff that really needs that analytical cognition, i.e. that unpredictable emergency. So what we want to do is we want to, um, all the decisions and actions that are predictable, we want to standardize those in guidelines and cognitive aids, and we want to repeatedly drill them so that we convert them from requiring analytical cognition to automatic cognition so that when we are performing these procedures, um, even though some of them are, are quite complex and, and high pressure, we actually do them as much as possible using automatic cognition, which doesn't use up a lot of our cognitive bandwidth, so that when that unforeseen emergency occurs, like the scenes suddenly become unsafe and we need to move the patient ourselves and all the equipment out of here, then we've got as much of our, our um, decision-making capacity free uh, to, to deal with the nuanced aspects of, of that, that situation. It's, uh, the, the analogy that I use is about learning to drive. So my youngest son is learning to drive at the moment and he is using analytical cognition for everything. He's completely aware of where, where his hands are on the wheel. He has to look down and work out what gear he's in. He has to look at the speedometer and work out what, what speed he's, he's at. And you could not ask him a question um, he would not be able to, he's not got the cognitive capacity to answer the question. But, you know, three months down the line, he'll have driven so much, he'll have repeated that process so much that everything will become automatic, like the way that, that we drive. And you'll listen to a podcast or you can have a conversation, you know, with your, your passenger because you've freed up that spare cognitive capacity um, for analytical cognition because everything that you're doing has become automatic and that's to me a huge part of training for for high pressure situations in healthcare yeah there's a lot of stuff in in what you just said that's that's not at all obvious or easy to come to if you haven't spent a lot of time seeing emergency patients over and over again because i think some of the first times that you get into these situations the idea that anything that you're seeing could be predictable routine and automatic is is kind of impossible, right? You're just watching blood and guts and chaos and dirt and everything else. And, and over time, you come to realize how much of what we do actually does fall into this predictable routine um, and sort of the fractal almost um, spiral nature of everything that we do, right? So there's emergency and unpredictability, but within that there are predictable elements, but within that there are unpredictable elements and it gets a little bit Zen if you keep going down in there. Right. But you, you know, you think about what it's like running a code, right? Well, okay. There's all of this unpredictability, but even within this chaos and this life and death moment, there are these little moments, these islands of calm, predictable nature that you can sort of attach yourself to do that and redesign and redeploy your cognitive resources in there. I think that even being aware that that's a thing is a very important sub-skill, right? The idea that you can find moments of calm in the middle of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, which I guess is sort of a, a, a bit of linking to something that 
that you and I have talked about before, this idea of, of rally points. But, but before we dive into that for a second, like what you're describing, the cognitive work of creating in the cognitive load theory, you'd be describing a schema, right? Whereas where you take the idea of a skill that exists in your, your working memory, your cognitive load that costs you that cognitive load and consolidating that into an automatic routine response. And some things are amenable to that and others aren't, which gets to this sort of predictable, unpredictable universe. The other thing that you said that's so fascinating that I've been wrestling with personally a lot lately is this idea of, of when can you use your automatic skill set and when can you use your more analytic skill set? And so, you know, there's this whole idea of system one, system two processing, and then also on the total other end of it, the recognition prime decision making model, which are two of sort of the great models of the universe in terms of like how humans make decision and specifically how we make decision under pressure. And this concept of predictability seems to sit right in the middle of it, right? So, so we're able to use some of these recognition primed skills, some of these automatic skills, when we encounter things that are predictable in the sense that they happen over and over again, we're able to recognize them and we have enough of a feedback loop to know when we've recognized them. When we can't, when we're not in that universe, when we're not in that predictable, nice universe, then actually those automatic skills are a hindrance to us. We start running into heuristics and biases and we start tripping ourselves up. So this question that I've been sort of like just really chewing on the last little bit is what parts of emergency medicine are predictable? How well am I, how, how good am I at identifying what is predictable and how do I actually figure that out? Like, how do you know when you're in a case, oh, this is a predictable moment, I should activate my automatic skills or geez, this really is an unpredictable moment. I really need to be careful and use my analytical skills here. I don't know, that's like 6,000 questions all at once, but. Oh, that's a, a really good question. And um, I have to say, I, I... I actually spend a lot of time now um, providing uh, opinions to the General Medical Council in, in the UK. Um, I work for an organisation called the Ombudsman, which deal with uh, complaints uh, in, in healthcare. And I also um, work for uh, lawyers who uh, are pursuing doctors who, are, who potentially have um, had negligent practice. And I also work for lawyers who defend them. And I have to say that I'm increasingly interested in the role of cognitive biases um, in the decision making which has gone on uh, when I'm analysing these cases. And I would say that uh, probably in more than half that cognitive biases and fatigue have, uh, have, have played significant roles um, in, in someone uh, having the making a diagnostic error and, and a patient ultimately has, has come to, to harm. So it is quite interesting um, how those cognitive biases um, can have a, a cumulative effect, particularly in, in the emergency department. Uh, and unfortunately, it's the more senior doctors who are more prone to them because they have seen more and they've got uh, much more automatic processing and uh, ability uh, and also pattern recognition. So um, the, I think there's an argument that the more experienced you are as, a, as an emergency physician, the, 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 the more likely you are to, to fulfill of some of these uh, cognitive biases. Uh, and yeah, so how do you get around that? Um, I, I think it's it's really difficult. It's like lots of these things about generally performance under pressure and falling foul of heuristics and cognitive biases. Um, if you had insight into that at the time, you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't be uh, uh, getting into the zone of frazzle and you wouldn't be making those errors. Uh, yeah, so I suppose it's um, yeah it's sometimes knowing when to to slow down the concept of of disconfirming questions. Why is pulmonary embolism, not the diagnosis here, what pieces of information um, are not fitting with, with pulmonary embolism as a, as a diagnosis. Um, it's about maybe asking a, a colleague uh, to, to come in and, and, and review briefly, you know, where you're at with a, with a patient if, if everything isn't uh, completely uh, adding up. But in the environments that we work in, where demand constantly exceeds capacity and you've been 
brought up uh, and trained to work at a fast rate of knots, to, to see patients quickly, get them out of the department, either discharged or, or admitted. Um, it, it's almost a, a badge of honor to, to be working at, at that rate um, where, again, we're, we're more prone to those, um, those types of error and those types of, of bias um, for the subtle cases that you think fit, fit a pattern that you've seen a hundred or a thousand times before, but there are subtle differences that, that you miss. Mm. And I think that goes back to what you were saying at the beginning when I was asking about what's your advice for somebody just starting out with this, which is to essentially to learn about yourself and to learn about how you perform under pressure and how humans perform under pressure, right? Because we have to be, you know, we certainly cannot address cognitive bias and heuristic error if we don't understand it, if we don't understand that it applies to us and, and when it applies to us and to try to get a sense of that. Now, we got a question from sort of the audience as we were preparing for this, which I thought was interesting, which is coming from a group that does uh, a bunch of different types of pre-hospital and transport care, um, which essentially was what skills, what lessons are applicable across all of the different parts of of emergency care that we do. So, so, but which I guess I'm going to flip a little bit and say that that we perform our emergency services in a variety of environments, and some of them are really well structured, and some of them are completely uh, in the middle of an island outside of Scotland where we maybe don't have any of the tools that we want. So, when we're designing our training, when we're working with ourselves, how do we figure out what pieces of either um, physical or mental kit, I guess I'll, I'll say, are applicable only to one environment and what really cross cut a, against everything? Do you know, so I work, I suppose, in three different environments in the ED, um, in the pre-hospital retrieval environment and the, the mountain rescue environment. And I have to say the all of the, the tools and, and the, the techniques that we both talk about and have been talking about today are all applicable to those different settings. Some, all of them do apply to all three settings, uh, but some are, are more applicable than, than, than others. Um, definitely, for example, uh, as I say, involved in, in two mountain rescue callouts at, at the weekend, um, very much, you know, physical fitness was in preparation that way was important. Um, avalanche uh, assessment is a, uh, was, was a big one. Um, safety uh, equipment, personal protective equipment, um, having a, a good briefing so that we all knew what we were going to, what the weather was going to do, when it was going to get dark, and um, what was actually wrong with it, the, the, the two people that um, we were going to, to rescue. Um, but um, probably less so um, standardized guidelines for, for et cetera, um, probably debriefing, et cetera, plays less of a platinum mountain rescue than it, than it does in, in pre-hospital and, and retrieval medicine. Um, certainly the, the pressure that you're under rarely uh, becomes excessive the way that it does with, with pre-hospital trauma care or an overcrowded uh, ED. So I, I, I genuinely um, feel that all of the principles are applicable in, in all three of those, those sectors, um, but in different proportions uh, in each. Hmm. It, it reminds me of a quote from uh, the book, The Inner Game of Tennis, um, which says uh, relaxed concentration is the ultimate skill because with it, much can be accomplished and without it, nothing can. And I'm, I'm missing that paraphrase a little bit in there, but, but I think that what you're saying is that, that a lot of this underlying conception of how humans perform under pressure is a master skill, that it underlines a lot of the other skills that we do in each of these divisions. And the more we're able to understand how we respond to pressure, how our teams respond to pressure, the better we're able to perform in basically any environment that we go into. Uh, yep, uh, absolutely. And, and again, the, the terminology uh, for techniques to use and behaviors that, that we will experience and exhibit is, is the same, no matter what high pressure environment you work in. Yep. Hmm. 
Well, I think we're we're coming close to the end here. So as we're as we're fading out, is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with? What challenge do you want them to to take on, or what do you want them to work on differently for their next shift? Pressure assessment, a personal pressure assessment. We are all interested in performance under pressure. Lots of us talk about high pressure incidents we're involved in. We work in a high pressure job but very few of us actually pause and think, what do we mean by pressure? How, what specific pressures actually face me in my job, whether that's uh, time pressure, potential consequences of failure, uh, cognitive load, working with unfamiliar teams. And to me, it is not possible to uh, perform optimally in a high pressure situation if we can't own the pressure and we can't own the pressure if we haven't broken those pressures down and understand them and taken steps to to manage each of the different individual pressures that, that we face so i would i would uh, and, and that is something i did as as, um, as part of the process of, of writing the book just sit down for a, with a blank bit of paper uh, for, for 10 minutes and think, what are the pressures that, that face me in my professional role? Um, and it's only uh, once you've got a handle on that, that you can actually start to take steps to, to try and control them. I love it. Stephen, thank you so much for joining. It's totally an honor to have you on and, and man, so much to work on from this. Thank you. And I really appreciate it. Absolutely great to, to speak to you. Thank you very much. Okay, folks, that brings us to the end of this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found something useful that you can use next time you find yourself in an emergency or a crisis. Again, if you want to dig deeper into a lot of the concepts that we covered here, sign up for the Emergency Mind newsletter, Knowledge Under Pressure. It is free and it is awesome. You can join by going to www.emergencymind.com slash sign up. Also, as a reminder, our mission here at the Emergency Mind is to dig into lessons around applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide medical advice. Our opinions, as expressed on this podcast or elsewhere, are our own and not necessarily those of our employers or the hospitals at which we work. So keep up the good work, keep training, and good luck out there.